The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Mother, Lover, and Friend, help us to believe that we are in here right now because you have seen to it, that you have something you want us to hear, to trust, to surrender to, even in the midst of the mystery of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Give us grace, we pray, together as we look at this story to believe that you can meet us in our own wilderness wandering, that you will send angels to attend us even in the midst of our discomfort, even in the midst of our trial. Give us grace, whatever those trials are today, to believe that you will meet us in them. And so be with us, we pray now, and help us to be present to your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. It was around this time, 12 years ago, that my wife and I went through one of the worst, most difficult trials and testings of our life. Um, one of our children who's having just a massive amount of struggle in their lives. And um, after a whole lot of conversations and meeting with different people to come and help assist us uh, in parenting this child, um, it was suggested that he go on a wilderness journey. Now, <clears throat> I can't really read this passage and talk about wilderness without thinking of that time. Um, it was actually called a, a wilderness therapeutic experience. <laughs> Um, the name of the program was called Second Nature Wilderness Program. So the name, so wilderness, just I can't go to wilderness without thinking about that moment in our lives. And it was difficult. He didn't want to go. We didn't want him to go. Um, we didn't know what might happen in that. We were grateful that some profound changes took place. Um, 
And about eight weeks into it, we got to visit for the first time. So it had been eight weeks since we laid eyes on this child. And uh, I can remember going out in the, and meeting him there in the wilderness. Um, one of the things he taught us and what we learned that day, because it's almost like an orientation for parents during that day, is that they take away all the watches, they take away all the gadgets, they take away everything. And they just strip down to kind of removing all the distractions. That's the gift of wilderness, is the simplicity of it, the resources being removed in some ways, and it helps us to focus. And one of the things they, they taught the boys, I think I've mentioned this here before in a sermon, is, is uh, that if you ask the counselors in this wilderness experience what time it is, you learn to hear that the answer is now. And in the, all the everyday hiking around in the, in the wilderness of the mountains of Utah, um, anytime you are tempted to ask the question, where am I, you can be assured that the answer is going to be here. Yeah. Here and now. And that really is the gift of wilderness. So today, we start our Lenten season um, with Jesus in the wilderness. And so Jesus has been baptized. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And just a little bit of a backstory very quickly is, is part of the structure of what Matthew is doing with this is he wants us to see Jesus as kind of a new Israel because Jesus is going to respond to these temptations always by reciting either Deuteronomy chapter 6 or chapter 8. It was in the midst of Israel being tested before they were going to enter into the promised land. And Jesus is pretty clearly being depicted here as the new Israel, as the one who comes to fulfill the vocation of being a blessing and a light to all the world and, and to all the nations. So that's kind of what's going on in the background of this, to, that Jesus is the one to bring the shalom of God. So the original readers of this would have seen a lot of this imagery in here. And so out of the myriad things that we could talk about in looking at this passage, I've just had a couple today that I want us to consider um, that came up for me this week as I was studying this. The first is the timing of the testing of Jesus should be paid attention to. So, so this occurs right after Jesus' baptism. So if you're not familiar with that, there was a time when Jesus goes to get baptized and the heavens open up and a voice from heaven comes, this is my son in whom I am, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. So this is literally ringing in Jesus' ears. As one commentator said, Jesus Jesus' hair is still wet from his baptism when he's led uh, into the desert. And the other thing that's interesting about the passage is that Jesus is indeed led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That the, that the dove had come and lit on his shoulder, that same dove now says, I'm going to guide you into the wilderness. And what I want you to do is think about this in this way, because what happens is, is Jesus goes into the wilderness, and Jesus is there for 40 days before this temptation narrative kicks in. So I want you to think of it to, in kind of a way of like, I want you to watch Jesus during these 40 days. Think about Jesus by himself in solitude. You ever been in that 
kind of a space before? You really feel 100% alone, like you are literally like in the middle of, quote, nowhere? You can, when you can finally really hear yourself breathe, where distractions are pushed away? This is where Jesus is. I want you to see him perhaps each day standing to pray. And maybe see in that as well the devil watching Jesus waiting even. And maybe halfway through those 40 days, Jesus is sitting to pray. And then eventually, towards the end, Jesus is perhaps laying on the ground, praying. Because the text goes to great lengths to emphasize that, to make sure and tell us that Jesus was famished. He was famished. Jesus felt the hunger, that being the Son of God, being the one who the Spirit has just declared from heaven, the Spirit has come down, the voice from heaven has declared, you are my beloved and you I'm well pleased, does not exempt Jesus from feeling hunger, from feeling sickness, from feeling pain. It did not exempt him from that. And so that's the timing I want you to pay attention to. That's when the temptation starts. When Jesus is out of resources, that's when the devil thinks he might be open to a little help. Jesus really felt these things. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that Jesus was tempted, was tempted like us in every way, and yet is without sin, which is why it goes on to say that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. The test comes about in the midst of despair. And so the question is, in what ways today are you famished? Might not be food, might be any number of other things. In what ways are you famished? In what ways do you feel desperate? I would suggest to you that it is in these very moments that we are most susceptible to taking matters into our own hands. It's also in those very moments where if we're paying attention, God can do some of God's greatest work in our lives. Both and. It's in these moments when we can forget the most important truths that will lead us into life. And part of the reason this is such a vulnerable moment, those times whenever you're feeling that desperation, whatever the famine might be for you, and it might be a number of things, it's when we're most tempted to swim in the most dangerous water there is, and that is a sea of self-pity. It is in that sea often where anything is possible. And in those moments, there has to be a way that we're cleaning out our ears, as it were, waking up as best we can and trying to do exactly what I believe Jesus did in the temptation wilderness, remember his baptismal identity. It is so easy to forget when the pressure is on. 
See, it's in those moments of desperation and famine where you have the potential of doing a deep dive into what really is driving the desperation of your life. I remember my therapist saying to me once, early on in my time with him, he said, whenever you begin to feel that way, Fred, I want you to go look in the mirror and tell that little boy it's going to be all right. Because the desperation or the despair that you feel may not actually be about those things that you can see and observe. They may be down there much deeper than that, calling out, looking for relief. So how is despair happening in your life? Will you allow yourself to feel it and not rush to relieve it? To ask it what it might have to teach you. That's a good Lenten question to ask. That's the first thing I want you to think about this week. Maybe in your groups together and as you leave today. What am I doing in the midst of my famine and desperation? Secondly, just the testing itself. So in preparing this, it's like, do I really go through all three temptations and try to explain them in great detail and all these kinds of things? It's such a, I don't know, it's such a cryptic kind of story. I'm not sure that's exactly what we're supposed to do with it, but we'll look at that a little. I mean, what's interesting here is that your translation might say that the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, but actually a little better translation is since you are the Son of God. There's a sense in which maybe both of those should be paid attention to the if and the sense. Because the if is a bit of a snarky way of saying, really, are you the Son of God? But the text really lends itself to the fact that you know, since you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, since you have been named with this power, I have got all sorts of ideas about how you need to use it. Because that's really what's going on with the testing of Jesus. It is all about power and the misuse of power, the misuse of everyday power, the misuse of religious power, and the misuse of political power. And from these stones, turn it into bread. Let's practice a little magic to feed yourself. I know how you should use your power, son of God. You're hungry right now, aren't you? I know you are. Well, you're the son of God. So just take those stones, turn them into bread so you can eat. I think maybe this is getting at that human need to be impressive or effective or relevant or looked to look good or, or whatever the ways in which we seek to do that in our life. Maybe that's part of what's being addressed. But it is essentially, I know how to use your power. Use it to feed yourself. No, use your power to test God. Use your power to do this spectacle of throwing yourself off this building and God will come and scoop you up after all. And just think of all the new followers you'll get as a result. There's some good pragmatic reasoning going on here. 
I know how to use your power. Misuse your power religiously. Misuse your power. Well, tell you what, take control of all the kingdoms of the world. Let's create inauguration for you now to be president of the world. Just bow the knee to me. You, you can do this. Now, I would say underneath a lot of this testing and all of our temptation as well is a subtle subtext. And that subtle subtext is this. You deserve better than this. You deserve better than what God has given you. Why should the Son of God be famished? Why do without it all? The temptation is to get you to shop around, actually, for another voice from heaven that will tell you that you're okay. Since you are, you deserve better. Seize power. Be a God, not a human, is what Jesus is hearing. And what I want you to hear today is that Jesus, in the midst of this temptation, insisted on being human. Insisted on being Emmanuel, God with us. Insisted on feeling all of it. That God's beloved would not practice magic, won't ask for special protection. He will remain human and insist upon it. Which, to bring it back to Hebrews 4 again, is so important. To know that you have a Jesus here who is saying, I will not exempt myself from the pain of what it means to be human because I want to know exactly how it feels so that you can know that God has truly become one of us and truly sympathizes and truly invites you to his throne of grace or you will find mercy in time of need. You will not believe that if you don't know that God may not explain all of your desperation, famine, and pain, but has experienced it and will share it with you. I don't know how, how I can ask you to enter in to a holy Lenten season and to do that kind of self-reflection if right out of the gate we don't say that, that God knows what it's like to be human, to feel it. What about you? How often do you hear in your head, I just deserve better. Things should be easier for me. I should be happier. I should be richer. I should be safer. I want you to know, I'm not saying that you don't have scenarios in your life where you shouldn't actually say that. I'm not saying that you stay with an abusive spouse, for example. You do deserve to be better treated, absolutely. I'm not saying that you just tolerate everything that's happening around you. I'm just saying be careful. When the, when the song of your life, not just this circumstance or that, starts to become, I deserve better. I am getting a raw deal. If that becomes the song of your life, I'm going to tell you you're placing yourself in a precarious spot. And it's time to stop and do some inventory. To ask hard questions like, who am I? Who is God? 
How does God relate to me? How do I remember my baptismal identity? Those are moments for pausing. And then lastly, so that the timing, the testing, and then there's the truth that has to be remembered, which I've already hit on many, many times here, but Jesus just refuses to forget who he was and is, the beloved of God. He repeatedly had to pull out his baptismal identity that I am God's beloved. It had to be ringing in his ears because nothing the devil tempts Jesus with could alter or make him more beloved than he already is. Once that sinks in, once that sinks in, you don't have to panic. There's an old theologian from years ago who used to say, faith is the refusal to panic. Think about that. Faith is the refusal to panic. There's a place in the Psalms where the psalmist says, fret not. To get in that that place of anxiety, of fretting, of, of panicking is almost always a place where we make some of our very worst decisions. And it's in that moment where we have to, again, push pause. Who am I? Who is God? I am God's beloved child. I am going to operate out of that. And if that's the case, I actually don't have to panic. I actually have nothing to prove. One of my, it's become a friend actually, and someone who I love to read, Jonathan Martin, said this. He said, but that's one way we can identify the devil's voice. It always plays to our fears. It's the voice that tells us we must do something to prove who we are, to prove that we're worthy, to prove that we are who God has already declared us to be. When we know we are loved by God, we don't have to prove anything to anyone. There's nothing any, we can do to make ourselves more beloved than we are. So do you believe that this morning? What might your life be like if the song of I deserve more and I'm not getting everything I need or deserve was replaced by I don't know, I have a lot of pain in my life and it is difficult, but I do know this, I am God's beloved child. All will be well and all manner of things will be well. And I don't know if I can trust that, so I have to have a community around me so that we can try to trust that together. So how's this sermon sitting with you right now, I wonder? Maybe someone right now is saying, really? (laughs) Really, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted in every way? Really? Hmm. Does Jesus really know about what it's like to try to have a career in this economy? What it's like to be under the pressure that I'm under right now? Does Jesus know, really, what it's like being lonely? And I don't really see any end in sight to that. 
Does Jesus really know what it's like to go through a divorce and to feel the pain of that? Does Jesus really know what it's like to parent teenagers? <laughs> or to be a teenager? In this particular does Jesus really know? Does Jesus really know what it's like to suffer from a debilitating depression? Does Jesus really know what it's like to like to be caught into a, a spiral of Substance abuse of getting clean and then relapsing and the trial of that, the pain of that, the difficulty. Does Jesus really know? I don't think Hebrews 4 is saying Jesus has experienced every one of those things in his 33 years. But what I do think it's saying is that Jesus knows what it's like to be human and to experience loss, and he is not exempt from pain, and he feels it deeply. And therefore, comes to you as someone who is a fellow sufferer and not simply a Savior. See, if you just make him a Savior, you're going to miss the way in which Jesus connects in empathetically with you, which I think is enormously important. Debbie Thomas in the front of your worship folder put it this way. I'll just read it. At his baptism, Jesus heard the absolute truth about who he was. That was the easy part. The much harder part came in the wilderness when he had to face down every vicious assault on that truth when the memory of his father's voice from heaven faded and he had to learn how to be God's beloved in a lonely wasteland. That is such a description of the Christian journey. What does it mean for me to be God's beloved in a lonely wasteland? Maybe we, like Jesus, need long stints in the wilderness to learn what it really means to be God's beloved. Because the unnerving fact is, we can be beloved and uncomfortable at the same time. We can be beloved and uncomfortable at the same time. We can be beloved and unsafe at the same time. In the wilderness, the love that survives, survives is flinty, not soft, salvific, not sentimental. Learning to trust it takes time. And that is the Lenten journey. Whatever wilderness you find yourself in, remembering the reality of your being the beloved. Because the temptation is not necessarily just to this or to that sin. It is for us to turn from the message of our baptism. And Jesus is saying, I believed you today on this first day of Lent. In the midst of your wilderness, I want you to know something. I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you. I have a path for you. There will be tests. And I will not always give you what you want when you want it. But I will be with you so that you learn over time to trust me that you're going to be all right.
The second thing that comes to my mind when I think about wilderness is not just my son's journey. But two years ago, when I was in the midst of a seven-hour hike um, in the hills of northern England with a poet by the name of David White, and we were doing these hikes at night because a heat wave had come across Europe, and so we started at 6 p.m., and we would go till 12 or 1 in the morning. And, you know, you have about four hours of, of uh, dark that time of year at that particular spot in the world. And, um, and so the, the night was always like this long, dusky kind of scenery. It was surreal. And because the, the hike was so long, we would be long stretches where I would be entirely by myself. And this particular hike was really difficult. And about five hours into it, I had twisted my ankle three times severely. I lost my sense of where direction I was in. I was just kind of starting to assume I was going in the right direction that would meet up with everyone else. And I began to panic. And I don't want to weird you out here, but in the midst of that sorrow and pain and everything, I started to weep. And I swear I heard the sound of my son say to me, this is a little bit what it was like for me when I was in wilderness. And I'm all right. And you're going to be all right. And I made it down that mountain. I don't know. Maybe those are the angels tending to me in the midst of my wilderness. And maybe to enter into Lent, you need to hear that from Jesus. In whatever wilderness you were in. To hear Jesus say, I've been in this wilderness. I'm all right. You're going to be all right. Trust me. Trust me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read this passage and we see this wilderness journey, it is scary, it's difficult, it's mysterious. We know that each of us have these vulnerable times in our lives. And however we find ourselves in that vulnerable moment right now, help us to believe that you will walk alongside us, that you are enough, that we don't need to take matters into our own hands, that we can wait, that we can feel that uncomfortableness and know that we are still your beloved children and help us, help us today. 
like Jesus to remember that we are the beloved, to hear that voice from you over and over again, especially during this Lenten season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.